transmitting live from the heart of Times Square on 99.5 FM WBAI New York, Pacifica Radio for the Tri-State Area. This is Trump Watch, a weekly series examining how President Donald J. Trump and his administration are changing the world we live in. I'm your host, Jesse Lent. I've seen it, uh, I've read some of it, and it's fine. Did they say economic impact is devastating? Yeah, I don't believe it. You don't believe it? No, no, I don't believe it. And, and here's the other thing. You're going to have to have China and Japan and all of Asia and all of these other countries, you know, addre- addresses our country. Right now, we're at the cleanest we've ever been, and that's very important to me. But if we're clean, but every other place on earth is dirty, that's not so good. So I want clean air, I want clean water, very important. That was President Trump speaking to reporters on the White House lawn on Monday about the National Climate Assessment, a report on climate change that U.S. presidents are required by law to release every several years, audio courtesy of the Associated Press. Despite not being scheduled for public release until next month's American Geophysical Union annual conference in Washington, D.C., according to Climate Nexus, the Trump administration opted to push the 2018 report out on the day after Thanksgiving, a move that prompted some environmentalists, like National Wildlife Federation President Colin O'Mara, to question whether the administration attempted to bury it on purpose. But more important than whether the Trump administration attempted to suppress their own report are the findings in the National Climate Assessment, the work of 13 federal agencies, including NASA and the Defense Department, with contributions from 300 scientists. As reported by my guest Umar Irfan, staff writer for Vox.com, in his November 26th article, Trump White House Issues Climate Change Report Undermining Its Own Policy, quote, exhausted fisheries, declining crop yields, deteriorating infrastructure, lost tourism, and extreme weather damages, all stemming from climate change, will slice hundreds of billions of dollars out of the U.S. economy. By the end of the century, climate change could cost the United States billion per year. He joins us now live on the phone. Hello, Umer. Welcome to Trump Watch. Thanks so much for being our guest on the show. Thank you for having me. That excerpt of your article obviously focuses on the economic costs of climate change that could take place in the coming decades. But what are some of the ways that climate change could affect the health or quality of life for those of us not dealing with more direct effects like the loss of our home or business? Well, we're already seeing some of those consequences right now. Um, with the wildfires we saw this year in California, um, with some of the worst that the state has ever seen on record, um, a lot of that was, in fact, exacerbated by rising temperatures, which has fueled drought, which has fueled forests drying out, and that has helped you know, create the dry fuel that is necessary to create those fires. Similarly, we saw with the uh, hurricanes that hit North Carolina this year as well, that the intense rainfall we saw was in fact exacerbated by climate change. And so some of the deaths and the property destruction, those are consequences we're facing right now, and those are pretty immediate. So this is not just something that's going to happen by the end of the century. It's something that's happening now. Right. As you just said, California just experienced 
two devastating forest fires in recent days with the campfire now believed to be the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in California history, according to CNN. Did the National Climate Assessment mention anything specifically about forest fires? And is this just going to be an increasingly dangerous part of American life in the years ahead? The National Climate Assessment did look at forest fires. It's actually a pretty complicated situation because there's so many different variables involved. It's not just the fact that the trees are drying out. It's also that people are living closer and closer to forests. And it turns out that humans ignite the vast majority of these fires. So it's a consequence of how we build. It's a consequence of how we manage these forests, whether by you know extinguishing the smaller fires, we allow the fuel to accumulate and build up. So forest fires are a natural phenomenon. They normally burn at low levels, but because we've been putting them out for so long to protect lives and property, we've kind of paradoxically created a situation that's made it a lot worse. And, of course, climate change is happening and uh, making that worse as well. So, yes, there's definitely likelihood that we could see more intense fires. The risk will likely rise in due to climate change, but also due to a lot of other things we're doing as well. Like the kind of issues you were just talking about, One section of the report focuses on the interconnectedness of natural systems, which makes them particularly susceptible to the effects of rising temperatures and irregular weather patterns brought on by climate change. A heading for that section of the report reads, quote, climate change affects the natural built and social systems we rely on individually and through their connections to one another. These interconnected systems are increasingly vulnerable to cascading impacts that are often difficult to predict, threatening essential services within and beyond the nation's borders. Why is this type of interconnectedness such an important part of this issue? I mean, one thing a lot of people do take for granted is just how dependent we are on the natural world. Even though many of us live in big cities and away from nature as we conceive of it, we still depend on things like rivers and rainfall to help irrigate the crops and the food that we eat, Um, but also things like transportation. I mean, uh, with uh, water levels being really low on the Mississippi River in recent years, we've had issues with, you know, shipping and barges being stranded because they're just not able to get through with the low water levels. Similarly, um, We have other issues with how our infrastructure and how we can move things around to actually, uh, you know, moving food around to feed the population, but also moving energy around. So it's not just, you know, the average temperature is going up. It's the consequences of those temperatures can ripple throughout the entire economy. For example, if water gets too hot, you can't use it to cool off power plants, which in turn forces power plants to turn down their power during the times of day when you actually need the most energy during the hottest parts of the day. So that can cause stresses on power grids, cause brownouts and blackouts. And those are consequences we're already dealing with as well. In the clip we played at the top of the show, President Trump says, quote, right now we're at the cleanest we've ever been, unquote. It's kind of difficult to follow his logic there. But what does this new national climate assessment released Friday by the White House Tell us about the state of the environment right now in the U.S. Uh, How much of a decline have we seen since, say, the third national climate assessment came out in 2014? Well, the thing I think Trump tends to conflate is the uh, issue of air pollution with, you know, climate pollution. We have seen tremendous improvements in, you know, air quality in terms of, like, getting particulates and ozone and smog reduced in cities. But that's not the pollution we're talking about here when it comes to climate change. We're talking about carbon dioxide, which is the greenhouse gas. And we're actually at some of the highest levels on record, the uh, United States and the world. Now, while we have reduced our carbon intensity by, you know, switching to natural gas and getting rid of some of the dirtiest fuels that we typically use, namely coal, 
uh, overall, our economy is still growing. Our energy demand is still growing, which means that, that the emissions that, are, that come with that are likely to either hold steady or continue to rise. And what we need is we need them to decline as quickly as possible. To stick with the president's comments on the report on Monday for just one more minute here, he also seems to imply that other countries like China and Japan are unwilling to do their fair share on climate change. But it was obviously President Trump who announced his intention to pull out of the Paris Agreement on climate change made with over 200 nations, including China and Japan, uh, back in 2015. Trump obviously announced that decision last year. And it appears that that act could already be affecting the international community's response to climate change, with the website Climate Home News reporting this week that a draft communique for this Friday's G20 summit in Buenos Aires does not mention the Paris Agreement. Have you seen this report, and do you believe the rest of the world could use President Trump's reticence to act on climate change as an excuse to delay their own action? Well, I can't speak to the G20 communique, but next month there's also going to be a big United Nations conference in Poland to deal with the Paris Agreement. And this conference is supposed to focus on measurement and verification. So one of the important things about what Paris did different to to, uh, previous climate treaties was that it let countries set their own goalposts. And that that was what, and so so Trump's comment that you know China and India and what uh, and uh, Japan aren't doing their fair share. Well, they're setting their targets for themselves just the way the United States is setting targets for ourselves. Um, we, we got to pick our own goalposts, and and we it's on us to do it. But uh, at the upcoming meeting, though, what, what they're trying to do is come up with ways to ensure that people are on the right track, just to measure and verify. And some of the folks I've talked to who are working with that are, are concerned that with the U.S. withdrawing for or in, indicating that they want to withdraw from the agreement, um, what that means is that they won't have a good measurement and verification system in place, meaning that whatever uh, rules get carved out, uh, they're likely to, have, likely to have a lot of loopholes. I mean, the people who are going to have the biggest voices at the table are going to be countries like China and India who have an incentive to, you know, give themselves as, as much wiggle room as possible. And some environmentalists are worried that any, um, you know, final agreement that comes out of the upcoming meeting will be completely toothless now that the United States is not there to lend its weight to the uh, process. President Trump has made it clear that he doesn't believe the national climate assessment. And as someone who has called global warming a Chinese hoax, as he did during the campaign, and even tweeted dubious statements about climate change as recently as last Wednesday, President Trump's feelings on this issue are quite clear. He doesn't believe the planet is warming due to human activity, or at the very least, he doesn't believe it calls for the kind of swift action his own federal agencies are calling for in this report. I want to focus instead of on Trump's views on what that will mean for the planet. What will four years of non-action of climate change mean for the United States and for the rest of the Earth? I think it's important to remember that, you know, while climate change is a major issue, we do have a great deal of control over what we do. You know, a lot of people like to criticize the climate models and saying that they're uncertain. The biggest uncertainty in those models is what we end up doing about climate change. It's, it's where the big X factor here. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the UN body of researchers, just last month, you may recall, put out that big report, this finding that uh, we basically have as little as 12 years to try to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius this century. We've already warmed up by about one degree Celsius since the pre-industrial revolution era. And so we don't have a whole lot of wiggle room left, but we do have it in our power to try to, you know, get in that trajectory. But that means that we need to essentially 
peak, level off, and rapidly decline our greenhouse gas emissions. For the United States, that means we need to have our emissions from basically where we are today by 2030. So losing four years of, of doing nothing or continuing on the, as business as usual just means we have less time and we have more drastic measures that we have to employ in order to stay within a level, level of warming that you know scientists say would be tolerable or something that we could actually manage or deal with. I'm speaking with Umer Irfan, a staff writer for Vox.com. You're listening to Trump Watch. My name is Jesse Lent. Umer, are there specific Trump policies, uh, things that have taken effect in the last two years, that you would single out as uh, being most likely to have a particularly uh, disastrous consequence for the environment? Well, the thing to remember about the Trump administration is that a lot of times their bombastic rhetoric isn't actually matched by their actions. And so he has made a big show of trying to roll back environmental regulations, but there's a whole process to doing that. And he hasn't actually been able to put up the numbers that he actually wants to do. That said, he is targeting two really big climate regulations. The largest source of greenhouse gases in the United States are vehicles and followed by that power plants. And so the two big rules that we have to help limit those emissions are you know, vehicle fuel efficiency standards and the clean power plant. Those were implemented by uh, the Obama administration. And the vehicle fuel efficiency standards, for example, were aiming to get vehicle emissions up to about um, fuel economy up to about 54.5 miles per gallon. And we would be able to cut out a huge amount of CO2 emissions by making our cars and trucks more efficient that way. And the other op- um, the other um, tack, of course, was the uh, clean power plant, which would help us, you know, get some of the dirtiest power sources off the market. The Trump administration is now trying to roll back those rules. They're trying to actually put a freeze on them from being implemented. And of course, some states now are suing the government saying that, no, you can't do that right now. And so it's tied down in litigation. But in the meantime, it means that these rules likely will not go into effect while they're being litigated. So it, it is, again, another stalling tactic. So in terms of actually being able to roll back the rules, they don't have actually much to show for it. But in terms of just, you know, stalling for time, they're definitely doing that. And what about the judges? A lot's always made of the amount of new judges, uh, particularly in the district court circuit, that this president has appointed. Is that one area that you see as, as potentially loosening environmental regulation? Yeah, the court systems in general, I mean, I think is, is, is sort of an... Um, um, an uh, overlooked era area of where, where the Trump administration has huge influence on environmental policy. I mean, all the way up to the Supreme Court with the uh, recent, you know, appointment of Brett Kavanaugh to the court, replacing Kennedy, who was actually a much more favorable judge to environmental regulations. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the reason why the Trump administration has been thwarted so far has been because a lot of the federal courts aren't letting them roll back the environmental rules by fiat that they want to. So things like the clean water rule and Things like, you know, loosening air pollution restrictions, the courts are telling the Trump administration that, no, the law says what it says. You still have to actually enforce these rules. Uh, But now that they're, you know, rapidly trying to fill as many vacancies as they can with friendly judges, I mean, the next time it goes before a court, they may very likely, again, rule in favor of the Trump administration and thereby setting a precedent for weaker and weaker environmental rules. And, of course, many of these judges are lifetime appointments, which means that they will continue to have these views and promulgate them for years, if not decades. And to put in a little plug, uh, listeners who are interested in the ramifications of uh, Brett Kavanaugh's, you know, sentence to the Supreme Court on the environment, we actually did a whole show about that back on October 10th with uh, Jay Michelson of the Daily Beast. So check out that show. 
Uh, now getting back to our guest today, Amara Fon from Vox, uh, getting back to your November 26th article, you report that President Trump's rationale for weakening climate change rules is that they're too expensive, uh, saying last month that, quote, what I'm not willing to do is sacrifice the economic well-being of our country for something that nobody really knows, unquote. Yet, as we touched on a few minutes ago, the price of doing nothing is actually substantially more money in both the long and short term. Can you compare the price of climate regulation to the economic costs uh, for loosening economic rules as the Trump administration is attempting to do or simply doing nothing as they have been doing? Right. Um, and, and yeah, the uh, the line that, you know, climate change or fighting climate change or mitigating its effects, I mean, that's not unique to Trump. It's a pretty standard Republican talking point. But that's one thing that the recent climate report kind of tries to put to rest is that, you know, they, as you mentioned, the cost of doing nothing is extremely high. Uh, the uh, One of the more extreme scenarios, they map, the report maps out lots of different scenarios, not just the extreme ones. But like the high end of it is basically $500 billion of economic losses per year. Uh, compare that to, you know, some of the storms and stuff we've seen uh, that with, um, you know, the recent wildfires and things like that. I mean, I've already seen estimates in the tens of billions of dollars for these fires. And so imagine that ramping up by an order of magnitude each year. Uh, so uh, the way one campaigner framed it to me is that, you know, this is a cost we're going to pay one way or the other. And we can pay up front on our terms by investing in c- cutting greenhouse gases and adapting to a future that's going to be slightly warmer, or we're going to pay down the line with interest not on our terms, but in response to disasters. And that's very likely going to be the scenario if we continue doing nothing. So um, the, uh, the science in terms of like connecting the dots between climate change and the actual economic value of it, I mean, that's, that's still kind of something that's still being um, hashed out. Actually, uh, this year, one of the, the Nobel Prize winners in economics, one of the winners, was, uh, was an economist who developed a model for you know, linking the impact of climate change to the economic cost and doing that kind of cost-benefit analysis. So it's something that has been studied for a long time, and it's becoming increasingly important as we try to come up with a policy that is affordable and is viable and actually does something meaningful to reduce the risks of this problem. In your Vox piece, you reference an article by Benjamin Hulick at E&E News, a news outlet used to be a contributor for, who points out that every president since John F. Kennedy has been briefed or received warnings about what you describe as, quote, the changes humanity has wrought on the global climate. The article shows uh, presidents as recent as George Bush Sr. taking climate change very seriously and pursuing what many would perceive as very aggressive action. Do you have a sense of when this became such a polarized political issue? And do you see any future for the Republican Party on climate change beyond its members, uh, you know, denials of the vast scientific consensus that humans are causing the rise of global temperatures? Yeah, it's it's really hard. Um, it's really fascinating this history of where climate change suddenly became a third rail on the Republican right. Uh, given that you know historically conservatives have been very strong on the environment, going back to you know Teddy Roosevelt, um, you know, and you know Ronald Reagan uh, was famous for putting together a major international treaty to limit uh, chlorofluorocarbons, the major gas that was eating away at the ozone layer. This was something that you know, would be unheard of today, a conservative leading a charge for an international treaty to ban a substance that industry was very fond of. I mean, that that would be 
almost uh, impossible to fathom today. But and yeah, you're right. Even George uh, Herbert Walker Bush, when he was you know debating with President uh, with the Bill Clinton during the 1992 campaign, they brought up climate change and talked about how it's an important issue. At that era, they were talking about the greenhouse effect and and referring to it as global warming. Uh, what ended up happening though is that the uh, the fossil fuel industry became more and more of a constituency on the right. And they threw their lot in there with this idea of deregulation, or rather at least keeping this, these environmental regulations off the table for as long as possible. And, um, you know, you had groups like, you know, ExxonMobil and like other oil companies, they weren't explicitly out there saying climate change isn't real, but were running, you know, advertising campaigns saying that the science isn't settled, rather than being on the side of absolutely saying no, they were just trying to say that essentially we don't know enough to do anything about it at this point. Uh, and and by using that, by providing that sort of rhetorical cover, they've allowed conservatives to essentially continue to stall on climate change or anything that was meaningful as far as cutting greenhouse gases at a policy level. So that started happening, you know, in the mid-90s. You may recall the Kyoto Protocol and, like, the, the vast organized campaign against it after the U.S. had signed it, but then the Senate almost unanimously declined to ratify it. So there was a very broad pushback, not just on Republicans, but also Democrats as well, to um, you know, pull away from this treaty, um, and and so so it's it's kind of um, fascinating to see. I mean, like it, it, it's people write whole books on this, and I, and uh, the New York Times actually did a really fascinating article. You may recall, um, looking into just the history of this uh, sort of political inversion on climate change. But uh, yeah, it's 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 just kind of hard to trace. But but it it definitely happened. There was a point in time when Republicans were actually sensible on climate change, and some of them are coming back to it now too. You've covered the energy beat in far-off places like Japan and Germany. Is there anything those countries or any other nation can teach us in the way of practical ways to reduce the types of pollution that lead to climate change or even finding the political will to get it done? Well, what's interesting, I mean, uh, in Germany, for example, they recently decided that they're going to no longer mine hard coal in the country completely. Um, and that, I like... And that was, you know, a very big political decision, this idea that, you know, you're going to completely shut down a major domestic industry. And politically, it was difficult because the Green Party in Germany caucuses with the uh, Social Democratic Party or with the uh, party that represents the uh, unions that, that are working in the mines. And so what they had to do was come up with a compromise that actually worked for environmentalists, but also worked for the coal mining industry, particularly the workers. So I went to Germany a few years ago and went to one of these areas where they are decommissioning these mines. And what the German federal government did is they invested a whole lot in, one, helping uh, older miners get early retirements to buy them out to make sure that they have, you know, uh, money to settle on, and then paying for, you know, worker retraining programs as well for younger workers who still need to find other jobs. And then for the community itself, they're, they're funding a vast rehabilitation project for this uh, mining area where they're, you know, essentially putting new grass on it, new trees, and turning it into a large nature park, essentially, and trying to build it as a tourism and a recreation area. It required a lot of broad coordination. It required a, you know, a lot of reaching across the aisle, and it required people you know, coming to an agreement. And it was something that took time. It took years to come to that conclusion, but it required everybody to politically push in the same direction, which, is, um, which in Germany might be even more difficult because they have far more political parties. Here in the United States, I mean, that's a little bit more difficult because we don't even agree on the same facts, that, you know, there is a party in the United States whose default line is that climate change isn't real, or if it is, it's not a problem that we have to deal with. 
So to that extent, I mean, that, that makes it more difficult. But on the other hand, there are countries that have, you know, more fractured political divides than we do that have tried to come to a consensus on it. Finally, in the last minute we have here, one bright spot of this report for environmentalists is that they now have a federal document that can, or, or another federal document, I should say, that can argue the dangers of climate change in economic and public health terms. How much of an advantage is this, though, when there are already so many other reports to support these kinds of claims, like the UN report from last month that you mentioned, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, you're right that this is just another data point on, in a long suite of, you know, research showing the impact of climate change. For activists, I mean, this is not, I mean, it, it, given how partisan climate change has become, it's very unlikely that this is going to change anyone's mind. But I think, as I pointed out in the article, I mean, one big area where it could make a slight bit of difference is in the lawsuits that some environmental groups have filed um, against the federal government for contributing to climate change, and then some of the lawsuits that some cities have filed against oil companies for, uh, you know, causing pollution that causes climate change. By, you know, laying this down there, by laying this foundation, but with the federal government itself acknowledging that climate change is real and it has real meaningful consequences, you kind of connect those dots between what's happening and the physical damage that's being caused to people. Making that argument becomes a little bit easier when you're in court and when the government itself, um, embarrassingly for the Trump administration, is contradicting them. I mean, it makes it a little bit easier to, to challenge any of these environmental rollbacks when you have, you know, the government's own scientists essentially saying that Trump is wrong on this. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I've been speaking to Mayor Irfan, a staff writer for Vox.com. You're listening to Trump Watch. My name is Jesse Lent. And that's going to do it for this week's show. Reggie Johnson engineered this program live. You can hear all 95 episodes of Trump Watch with Jesse Lent at soundcloud.com slash trumpwatchwbai or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter and join us again next Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. when my guest will be Anita Kumar, White House correspondent for McClatchy News. For real this time. Until then, I'm your host, Jesse Lent. Talk to you next time. Thank you.